reading this morning comes from the same gospel, Matthew's gospel, a little bit later in the verse, chapter 19, verses 13 and 14. Then little children were being brought to Jesus in order that he might lay hands on them and pray. The the disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, Let the children come, and do not hinder them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. We celebrate the written word of scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me now in prayer. Thanks be to you, God, for creating this space and this time for us to come together to hear your word, to celebrate life, and to give thanks for our children. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. I was working on my sermon last week when I received a chain email. You know those chain emails? And it was titled, titled, God Lives Under the Bed. I often feel just a little bit creepy when I get one of these, as I've gotten so many that end by telling me to send it to ten people in the next five minutes, and if I don't, something horrible will happen to me or some other subtly implied threat. But the title intrigued me, and as I was thinking of children and Jesus, I took a look. It begins, I envy my brother Kevin. Kevin thinks God lives under his bed. At least that's what I heard him say one night when he was praying. He was in his dark room, and I stopped to listen. Are you there, God? He said. Where are you? Oh, I see. Under the bed. Kevin's sister reports that he was born 30 years ago, is 6 feet 2, and mentally disabled after a difficult labor. He reasons with the capabilities of a seven-year-old, and he always will. He will probably always believe that God lives under his bed and that airplanes stay up in the air because angels carry them. He's not obsessed with his work or the work of others. His heart is pure. He still believes everyone tells the truth. Promises must be kept. And when you're wrong, you apologize instead of argue. Free from pride and unconcerned with appearances, Kevin is not afraid to cry when he's hurt, angry, or sorry. He's always transparent 
always sincere, and he trusts God. Not confined by intellectual reasoning, when he comes to Christ, he comes as a child. Kevin seems to know God, to really know God, to be friends with God. God seems like his closest companion. I envy Kevin's simple faith. It is then that I am most willing to admit that he has some divine knowledge that rises above my own mortal questions. Who knows if Kevin comprehends things I can never learn? After all, he spent his whole life in that kind of innocence, praying after dark and soaking up the goodness and love of God. God is under my bed. It reminds me of the Calvin and Hobbes comic. You know Calvin, the little boy that's entirely full of it, and his tiger friend Hobbes, who is alive for him, but the stuffed tiger for the rest of the world. They're going to bed, and Calvin looks toward the underneath of his bed. Any monsters down there? Calvin, leaning over his shoulder, he calls out, Nope, uh uh-uh. No one down here, comes the reply from under his bed. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. I am continuing the preaching series on hymns, and this is my hymn for today. So today I'll be reflecting on Jesus loves me. It really can't be more simple than that, can it? Written by a woman in the middle of the 19th century, Anna Bartlett Warner, who lived on the East Coast and made a name for herself writing poetry and simple songs for children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A simple little poem. I think Jesus most likely would have loved this little ditty. Because as the text this morning so clearly shows, Jesus treasured children. As I thought about about this sermon, I thought about my own child. Hood, sorry. (laughs) Frankly, there was never a time when I didn't believe in God. I wanted to learn about God And so I got a white Bible from somewhere and started from the beginning, like you do with most books on the planet. But long before before long, I got stuck in a list of judges and then the kings and wandered off into the field of the explications of the laws in Leviticus. What happened to God? Luckily, about about the same time I was... When I was about seven or eight, I read this little book called Hotline to Heaven, which described how to pray. And the first thing it did to do, it explained, was to find a place for yourself where no one would bug you. And it suggested going into the bathroom. No one's going to bug you in the bathroom, right? So crawl into a dry tub in the bathroom. 
turned out to be true. And then it is explained that when you're praying, you're actually handing things over to God, putting things in God's hands. So really, you only need to pray, you only need to pray about things once. Because when you gave it to God, you trusted that God would take care of it. So, when I went, when I prayed in that dry bathtub, I imagined offering my prayers up and God taking them from me. I also spent significant time just talking to God about my life and my days. And here's the thing. I had tremendous answers to prayer. I remember one time mom stuck her head in the bathroom and said, can you pray, ask me to pray for my uncle who was having a difficult time getting a job. I prayed for him and two weeks later he landed this great job. Thinking back on that little book now, I realized that Hotline to Heaven was really about how to practice trusting God. But that was a long time ago, before seminary, before I learned that four authors wrote Genesis over centuries, before I learned that there are two distinct creation stories in, in the Bible, and that each of the four Gospels were written by a different author and had significant differences in them, before I knew that Jesus might not have said every exact word in the New Testament, as I grew and studied, things became more complicated. Jesus loves you. Yeah, right, right, right. But what about the killings of the Holocaust? And what about the Rwandan Holocaust? And what about the lousy things we do to each other every single day? As adults, as those who feel and see the pain our world knows, we need a faith that's a little more complex. Something that's a little hard to get your head around. Something nuanced that lets you get your teeth into with theological debates and shades of interpretive grace. Then we can say that our faith is a real one. We can proudly state that we are not Christians who stick our heads in the interpretive stands with sweet little ditties and, about the Bible and love. Now, before I get too far, I have to give you a disclaimer. I am married to this, the SFTS, the seminary's systematic theologian. He spends his days explaining what it means that we believe in God. He spends his days trying to figure out what it means when we say, I believe that, son, that God's son died for our sins. I believe that God acts in my life. Because how we explain these statements has a huge impact on how we understand God and faith and how we live our lives. I am not standing here to advocate for a simple, non-questioning faith. A faith that doesn't question things is a faith that is not taking 
our lives or God seriously. And the non-self-reflective faith is a dangerous one, easily able to wander off into hostile interpretations and to validate violence and hatred and other things that are not of God. But here's the thing. If we're not careful, we can end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater and dismiss any personal claim on our lives by saying that belief in Jesus, Jesus is really just a bit complex, a little beyond the average Joe. And then Reverend Ed Hurd writes, Dr. Karl Barth was one of the most brilliant and complex intellectuals of the 20th century. He wrote volume after volume after massive volume on the meaning of life and faith. A reporter once asked Dr. Bart if he could summarize what he had said in all those volumes. Dr. Bart thought for a moment and then said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you. This I know. When the disciples ever earnestly, um, Frederick Buechner writes, I'm sorry. When the disciples over earnestly as ever asked Jesus who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus pulled a child out of the crowd and said the greatest in the kingdom of heaven were people like this. <clears throat> 2,000 years of homiletic sentimentalizing to the contrary and notwithstanding, Jesus was not playing Captain Kangaroo. He was, he was saying that the people who get into heaven are people who, like children, don't worry about it too much. There are people who, like children, live with their hands open more than with their fists clenched. There are people who, like children, are so relatively unburdened by preconceptions that if somebody says, there's a pot of gold at, that end, at the end of that rainbow, they're perfectly willing to go take a look for themselves. Children aren't necessarily better than other people, Buechner writes. Like the child in the emperor's new clothes, they're just apt to be better at telling the difference between a put-up job and the real thing. Frederick Buechner is right, you know. We take these verses in Matthew and say these are precious moments when Jesus slows down for a minute and hugs a baby waving to the crowd like a politician on a campaign trail. And we miss the point. Or maybe we want to miss the point. That's what worries me. Maybe we want to sentimentalize this moment and not take seriously the claim. Because Jesus loves you. Head to toe. Jesus knows you, really knows you.
knows all about you and all about me. And the tremendous, unbelievable, God is under your bed news is that Jesus loves you even more knowing you from your head to toes. Like a mother who remembers seeing you the moment you were born and never forgets. Jesus loves you. How could that not be good news? Amen.